Welcome to the sermon podcast for First St. Charles United Methodist Church in downtown St. Charles, Missouri. We are so glad that you're here, and it's our prayer that you feel safe, welcome, and wanted in this space. If you're interested in finding out more about us or supporting our ministries, you can connect with us online at firststcharlesumc.org. Today's scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what one already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let us turn our faces to the Lord God and be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. In his great mercy, God has given us living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Describing the experience of many, one writer recounts, when I was a 12-year-old girl in white Sunday school shoes, I used those already two small shoes to walk my skinny self right down the altar of our church during the altar call. I chose that day to be baptized, not because the Spirit moved in me, but because I was scared not to, and all the college kids were home from school that weekend, and I knew this meant I'd get a lot of attention to some teenagers that I looked up to. What it was called was getting saved. But saved from what? Salvation takes many forms at different stages and in different ways. Maya Angelou speaks with wisdom when she said, I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. I think, already? Many are we who have found that salvation is much more than a decision we made at age 12. For the 80 to 100 people who meet at our church each week in AA, it comes with the daily decision to stay sober and the courage to regularly reach out to their sponsor, to persons trapped in generational poverty Getting an education can be a kind of saving. Many, many of us have known the Scripture is right that declares faithful friends are life-saving medicine. Do you have a friend who has seen to your saving? Or on the other side, Jesus tells a story about a man saved by a Samaritan Can we be saved by those we hate? Some of us have been saved from bigotry by having a child or a grandchild come out as gay. I once knew the most racist man you'd ever want to meet. We all wondered how it would work out when his dear daughter married a black man. That man has gone on to become a full bird colonel in the U.S. Army. And together they've given the man, the most wonderful grandchildren who have led him to a 180-degree change in his life. Salvation takes 
many forms at different stages and in different ways in our lives. Those of us who were raised in the evangelical wing of the Reformation wing of Christianity were taught that we are saved by faith and faith alone. There is nothing about that that I would for a minute dispute. Our Scripture today, however, tells us for in hope we were saved. Can hope be our saving? Have you ever noticed that persons can live without a past? There are people who, because of injury or illness, have some form of amnesia, and they still go on to live relatively happy, productive lives. We can live without a past. What we can't live without is a future. We human beings have this capacity to transcend the present, but also a built-in need. It is as the power of the future that God comes to us. God comes to us in hope, with hope. It's hope that makes us whole. It's not, however, guaranteed. Now, hope, Paul says, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what one already sees? Hope is not guaranteed. And despair is an ever-present temptation. John Claypool once recounted a story in which he says, I was going through a busy airport in a large southern city and I bumped into a lady who had been a friend of mine decades before. We had gone to church together a long, long time ago. As we chatted there, since we hadn't seen each other in some time, I did what I always do. I asked her, how's your husband? How's your family? And when I said, husband, A terrible look of anguish came over her face, and she said, you don't know, do you? And I said, know what? And she said, he took his own life six months ago. Well, I was absolutely shocked because I had known this man years before. He was filled with promise. He came from an achieving family. He had gone to the law school at his state university and graduated number one in his class. He was invited to join a very prestigious law firm in a large city, and because of his ability, he had risen quickly to become a senior partner. In fact, uh, I recall that people would say this young man has the potential of being the governor of this state or maybe even a United States senator. Therefore, I could not imagine that all that promise had come to such a tragic end. But then she told me that the problem began very innocently. He began to drink socially and the many occasions that make up life in his social class. She said it became the old, old story of a man taking a drink and then drink taking the man. She said that 
he began to depend increasingly on alcohol. It began to take its toll on his health and his ability to function in the office. And she said, as it got worse and worse, he put up the two defenses that people with those kinds of addictions usually put up. The defenses of denial and blaming. People would say to him, you're having such a problem with drinking too much. He would get very angry and say, I don't have a problem. If you think I have a problem, you have a problem. And then she said, when it was no longer possible to deny because the wreckage was everywhere around him, he then resorted to blaming his parents for having raised him too rigidly, blaming his law partners for putting too much pressure on him, and blaming his clients for being unreasonable. The last straw that broke the camel's back was when his law partners asked him to resign from the firm and the Bar Association threatened to lift his license. He retreated within himself and began to drink even more heavily. One afternoon, she said, he was going to take out the garbage. I saw him go through the garbage and then I heard that terrible sound of a gunshot and I knew what had happened. And then she said, you know, his deepest problem looking back was not alcohol. His deepest problem was despair. We could never, never get him to believe that there was something redemptive that could be done about his situation. He cut himself off from hope and therefore cut out of his life those energies that could have been redemptive. He cut himself off from hope and therefore those things that could have been redemptive. Telling almost the same story the writer Frederick Buechner says of his father, people used to ask, how did your father die? He would always say, he died of heart trouble. Then Buechner adds, that was at least partially true. You see, he had a heart and it was troubled. For in hope we are saved. Could you use a little saving hope? Or maybe a lot. In the midst of the civil rights movement, religious leaders from all over the country were meeting to try to talk through a way forward. At one such meeting, a participant says, we happen to be meeting in a synagogue. I remember saying to the rabbi as I walked out, you know, there are times I just feel like it's hopeless. And he said, if you have a few minutes, come into my study. I'd love to talk with you about that. I still remember he quietly took out his pipe, packed it, lit it, and disappeared in a cloud of smoke. He kind of reminded me of Moses up on Mount Sinai. As the smoke began to clear, he said in that measured sense of one who had experienced 
so much of life, I need to tell you that to a Jew, there is only one unforgivable sin, and that's the sin of despair. To say of any situation that it is hopeless, to say that there is nothing redemptive that can possibly be done, that is simply not a position that we would consider able to be tenable. He said, humanly speaking, despair is presumptuous. It's saying something about reality that we finite human beings have no right to say because we don't know everything. This is what we proffer. The humility to trust that the worst things are never the last things. The worst things are never the last things. And what you're feeling right now is not what you will feel forever. In a story that may speak to many, Nadia Boltz Weber says, I was speaking somewhere in the Midwest earlier this year when a middle school kid raised their hand during a Q&A. I called on her, and in her anxious bravery, she asked, Pastor Nadia, what advice do you have for someone my age who might be bullied and not have many friends and is maybe someone who other kids make fun of? Usually, during a Q&A, said Nadia, regardless of who asked the question, I direct my response to the whole group, but not this time. This time, I looked directly into her eyes and said, Look, kid, I'm so sorry that that's happening, and I totally get it because I've been there. But as horrible as it is right now, just do whatever you can to get through it. Because I promise you one thing. Grown-ups who are bullied in middle school and survive it are like ten times cooler and more interesting as adults than the ones who are doing the bullying. You get through this, and you're going to be amazing. I promise you, those kids will be nothing but a footnote later on. I mean, come on. Who wants to peek in middle school? Her whole face changed. Like I just told her, some combination of the cancer is treatable and you're stunningly beautiful. Her anxiety turned to hope. Who wants to peek in middle school? The worst things are never the last things. And so we lean forward, 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 fixed on a hope that will outlast, outlive, outshine, outgrow everything we see passing away. We can do this. We can do this. Together, we can do this. Hopefully, for the saving of us all.